last message on our spiritual boot camp series, and we have been looking at essential items for the growth of the Christian. We've covered the importance of reading and studying the scriptures. That was our first week. And for a growing number of people who fancy themselves as independent thinkers, it amazes me how they drink the cultural Kool-Aid about the Bible. In fact, it befuddles me how even pastors speak of how the Bible is filled with errors in the Old Testament, but we need to give way to the words of Jesus as supreme since, you know, he just talked about love and rainbows and unicorns. And yet we read this in John 5, for if you have believed Moses, and I believe that Moses is in the Old Testament, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, when you strip the Old Testament of its historical detail away from Jesus, you strip the theology, the redemption story, the history from the Jewish Messiah And what you have left is something entirely different than the Lamb of God who came to save the world from their sins. We looked also at prayer and how prayer is an invitation from Almighty God to enjoy communion and intimacy with him. And then last week, we talked about the church. And though the church has its issues and people denigrate the church, and we get it. There's not a person in here who's not been disappointed by the church who's not been hurt by the church, including this one. And yet it's still the bride of Christ. And Christ loves the church. Christ died for the church. He values his church. And no Christian who's concerned about living under the lordship of Christ can deny the significance of the church, nor our need for covenant participation. So those were our first three weeks. Today we're going to talk about our stewardship as individuals in the body of Christ. And really, if you think about it, stewardship is what this whole series has been about. I mean, having an appreciation for the Bible and learning how to pray, that is seeking to be a good steward of our relationship with God and understanding the importance of the church and seeking Uh, To have healthy relationships there is a means of stewarding our relationship with one another. This idea of being a steward means that we are personally responsible to have a healthy relationship with God, to have a healthy relationship with people, no matter the circumstances. In other words, we are not bound to replicate the failures or spiritual weaknesses of our parents, of our church, of our pastor, of our friends, of our spouse, or whoever else we are prone to blame for our failures. We can grow and mature regardless of what others do. And that means taking personal responsibility for our own walk with Christ. I'm not saying we're not influenced by others, 
but we still have to take responsibility for our own lives. We can grow and we can mature, regardless of what others do. That means that forgiveness has to play a big part, because all these different social settings I just mentioned can cause us disappointment and pain. And so we have to forgive those who have hurt us, those who have let us down, so that those things do not leech upon our own spiritual health. So I want us to talk further about what it means to take responsibility and to steward our covenant participation within the body of Christ. First is that our participation in the body of Christ is a stewardship for unified relationships. For unified relationships. When we operate in unity, check this out, we become an answer to the prayers of Jesus. He said this in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. By the way, I think Jesus gave the best evangelistic strategy for the world. It's not set up a show on the stage, wow the crowds of how awesome you are. No, let them see how you treat one another. Let them see the way you love one another. And that is our best evangelistic strategy for the world. And then people say, hey, I want some of that. Whatever that is, every believer and the body of Christ is asked to uphold unity. But I also want you to know that there's something that we need to believe in. There's a standard of truth to uphold. It says those who will believe in me through their word, speaking of the apostles' word in verse 20. Jesus prays that we will believe in him through the word. Listen, We live in a kind of an anti-intellectual era within Christendom, particularly in America. And that means doctrine is eschewed, it's it's denied, it's, it's neglected. We just have to feel Jesus. That's why worship now trumps preaching within the American evangelical church. People choose a church based on how they feel within 20 minutes of worship not the intellectual capacity of the, of the words in a sermon that was, that's been switched on its head. 50 years ago, used to be the sermon. I'm not denigrating worship. I'm just saying that's the way most people look at it. And I'm not necessarily liking that because I like to preach, but that's the way it is, right? But Jesus is praying that people will believe him Through the word, there is no spiritual unity without essential truths, without doctrine. And that centers around who Jesus is, what he came to be. That's basically the terms of the gospel. 
That's why Paul had this discussion in Galatians 1 about Peter and all the issues he had with the Jews and the Gentiles there. And he's saying, hey, we are unified around the gospel. Even though you got these incredibly varying backgrounds, we are unified around these truths about Jesus. I mean, we can hold hands we can sing songs together. We can have a group hug. We can even agree you know, to do certain outreaches within the city, but our hearts have to be knit together around the truths of the gospel. And that's a, a body of truth, which reminds us then of this, is that unity is not syncretism. Unity is not where we blend everybody together to believe whatever they want in varying religions. And they have maybe entirely different views of Jesus. It's not an Oprah unity. Unity is not syncretism. Unity is not uniformity, where the community is forced to conform to external lifestyle codes. You know, do not drink, do not go to movies, blah, blah, blah. And we don't tolerate any disagreement either on secondary issues. When spiritual leaders start demanding that you fall under their authority with secondary issues like that, run for the hills. I think there's something healthy about a church body when we can disagree about some things. In fact, you can disagree about anything, right? Really, I mean, you have the freedom to do that, right? But... As far as having unity and being a part of the body, we have to be unified about the gospel. But unity is not uniformity. What is unity? Unity is the spiritual effect of the Holy Spirit bonding Christians together in faith, covenant, and relationship. It's a very real and authentic connection. And so we honor the spiritual reality of Christ in us and us in Christ. We uphold one another we serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. This past couple of weeks, I was enjoying with a dozen or so folks in our discovery group. And, you know, they share these different stories about how they came to Christ. And yet there's, there's such a camaraderie. There's a, there's a kinship in, in purpose and just an, an authenticity around Christ. And it's just... So refreshing. It's one of my favorite things I do as a pastor to, to hear these stories of how God brings people to himself and to this place. And that's part of the unity that we experience. But you know how we muck it up? We muck it up by start adding a bunch of stuff to it. We start demanding that Christians have to agree on this or that. You know, everybody's got to be of the same political stripe. Everybody's got to like the same music. You know, everybody's got to do this or that. And you then start screwing with unity and you mess it up. You have to keep it simple in terms of the gospel because I think that's how the Bible presents it. It's not that other things aren't important. It's not that we can't have personal convictions about things. You can and should. But when I demand that you have the same view I have in terms of politics or a lifestyle issue, that's not unity. So there's something healthy about having some disagreement, but still being unified. Next, says that our participation in the body of Christ is a stewardship to use our gifts for the mission of the church. So we, 
We steward unity, and then we steward our gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And 1 Timothy 4.10, uh, 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Listen, every spiritual gift is given for the purpose of the rest of the body. Okay? It's not for self-edification. It's for body edification. Every believer in the body of Christ is on a mission. Every believer in the body of Christ is given a gift to help accomplish the mission. And so every believer is to serve and play a part. There's no such thing as a growing, maturing Christian who is not serving. And that doesn't mean inside the walls of the church, but you're using your gift somewhere, somehow. In fact, a survey was done with Christians, and they were asked, to what extent has your ministry or service to others affected your spiritual growth? And 92% answered that serving others impacted their spiritual growth positively. I'd say amen to that. In fact, I'm wondering where the other 8% were, what they were thinking. Our serving is not a solitary obligation, though. It's always connected to other spiritual factors. Listen, for instance, to 1 Samuel 12, 24. It says this, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. Did you catch that last part? I serve him, and it's connected to the gratitude that I have for how good that God has been to me. My capacity to serve is influenced by my gratitude. It's a motivation for service. That's why Christians who stay ticked with God, maybe for not coming through for them, so they think, in a particular situation, when they feel that way, instead of being grateful, they've just created a pathway for not serving. They're going to be on the sidelines. Service is also an outflow of worship. We read in John 3.3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and then we read later that he washed their feet. Notice he knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. This is all in terms of with God. He knew what had been given to him by his Father. This is not a head knowledge, but this is a, an experiential Intimate awareness. Jesus was aware of his calling before God, his purpose of life, his connection with God. And then he served. He washed feet. So show me a person who does not understand the love of God or does not walk in the grace of God. And I'll show you somebody on the sidelines who's licking their wounds because of failure. They feel like a failure. Folks who are not walking in the grace of God usually are nursing a hurt. Or they're in a position of ang- being angry with God. Now, we've all been there. You may be there right now. It's nothing unusual. But it's just not a good place to stay. Because what it is it kind of spreads like, like a cancer 
of the soul. And it spreads to our spouse, to our, our children, our friends. So when I see God for who he is and I see how good he is, that he loves me, provided for me, then I can serve him with, with joy, with, with honor, with, with privilege, a sense of it's, it, I'm serving God. Man, that's a privilege for me. So there's a stewarding of gifts, there's a stewarding of relationships, and then there's a stewarding, stewardship of money. Now, there are a few hot buttons that we do not like talking about, you know, maybe you're with family, religion, okay, Uh, politics, uh, death, things you normally don't just talk about, but the the most difficult conversation now that you can possibly have, there's one clear winner, and it's money. Money. Money landed at the top of a recent survey. Hot topic we avoid. Most challenging chat is about personal finances with people. I mean, even more difficult than death? Yep. I read it on the internet, so it must be true, all right? What we avoid talking about is usually what we are in denial about. And what we are in denial about usually hurts us. So let's let the Word of God do some intervention on our hearts and set us free from this, all right? Here's the first principle to grab a hold of. Stewardship acknowledges that God owns it all. He's the owner of all we possess. First Chronicles 29, 14 says, For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. All I possess is from God. God is the giver. Just think about that. Let that truth soak in. I am the receiver. The fact is, everything that I give has been given to me by God. We don't own our possessions. We are trustees of God's possessions. Psalm 24, 1 says, The world is the Lord's and all that is in it. I mean, we often speak of things that are ours, right? We, we, think, we say, my car. This is my house. This is my stereo. We even say, my wife. My kids, in a very true theological sense, the car is not ours. The house is not ours. The stereo is not ours. I don't own my wife. I don't own my children. Now, I feel a sense of responsibility for them because I'm stewarding what God has given me in those relationships. But they're God's. You see, who owns the stuff makes a big difference in how we approach life. When I own it, I may feel like I can do whatever I want with it. And there are a lot of people who operate that way. When God owns it, I begin to think in terms of what he desires. I mean, when King Tut's artifacts from Egypt go on tour to other museums, each museum 
understands they don't own these priceless treasures. They're responsible to handle the possessions with great care. I mean, the Egyptian authorities have the say over its usage. And God is the giver of all we have. He is the owner who puts us in stewardship of all possessions under our care. The opposite of stewardship is seeing our possessions merely as objects to consume. Welcome to the American culture. We live in a culture that teaches us not to be content, to spend, to want more. I remember sitting when I was in the business world, sitting in a business meeting, and the sales manager, there's all other managers sitting in the room, and I was one. And our boss was, you know, trying to pontificate about sales and saying, what's the most important thing to you? And he just pointed me first and said, Kevin Short, what's more important to you than anything? And I said, contentment. Wrong answer to give in a sales meeting. <laughs> wow, let me tell you. He, he, went, he went for me like a bat out of hell. And I mean, I'm just like slinking in my chair and oh, geez. Contentment. You know, the church at Laodicea, in Revelation 3, was criticized for pursuing affluence. John wrote this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What I want to deposit is that our lack of contentment, this consumer mentality, that grates against a generous spirit. Christians who think this way think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. I like what Andy Stanley said. He said, on the world scale, you should have no problems at all other than a handful of rich person problems. Think about that for a second. You're rich. You say, no, I'm not. Yeah, you are. You know, if you make $30,000 in your household income, you're richer than 95% of the world. Did you know that? That's a fact. He said, on the world scale, you should have no problems at all other than a handful of rich person problems. Problems that the majority of folks on this planet would love to have. Bad cell phone coverage? That's a rich people problem. Can't decide where to go on vacation? Rich people problem. Computer crash? Slow internet? Car trouble? Flight delays? Amazon doesn't have your size? All rich people problems. Next time there's a watering ban in your neighborhood, just remember that many people, mostly women, carry jugs on their heads for hundreds of yards so that they can have water for cooking and drinking. They can't imagine a place where there's so much extra water that house after house just sprays it all over the ground. I'm not here to have us feel guilty about what we possess, but being grateful, grateful, it fuels all sorts of wonderful things for us. 
Our next point is this, is that stewardship means believers set aside a portion of income to give generously and regularly to God's work. There's a term first fruits that's, that's used throughout the Old Testament to signify a portion of a, of a harvest or a flock that was to go to God to recognize his ownership. The Hebrew people thought of the first fruits as belonging to God in a very special sense. It was an act of worship. It was a way to recognize the priority of their life as a, as a worshiper. And even from the New Testament, we read in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside some and store it up as he may prosper. See, generosity won't happen unless we make it a priority. That means the very first check you write every month, or now it's the very first click you make on the computer as you pay your bills, all right, is the first fruits to God. See, the tighter you grip it, the more it rules you. The more you let it go and allow God's value system to take over, the more freedom you have. Before the mortgage, before groceries or clothing, before saving, whatever the amount, you give your first fruits. It's a symbolic way of reminding you where your hope lies. See, the tendency is to think, I'm going to be generous when I get more. I just need extra. Even though, as I mentioned, every household above $30,000 is in the top 4 or 5% of the world. But most people don't feel rich because we're on this path of consuming more. Again, this is not to make you feel guilty that you have nice things. It's to shift our attention to gratitude. But let's face it. The facts are is that the debt load and our fleshly desires form a lethal dose of strychnine to a generous spirit. I know because I lived through it. And there's one antidote, one, and that is to make progressive percentage generosity a priority. When we make generosity a priority, that means we choose it now and not wait until our stock goes up, till we get a raise, till we get that thing paid off, until things change. I read a true story of a guy who was working on ATMs, and he was in a room behind a whole series of ATMs in Corpus Christi, and he locked himself in the room. He couldn't get out, and he did not have his phone. He had to stick little notes through the ATM dispenser to customers who were coming. Hey, I'm trapped. Call the boss. Call the police. Somebody. Most customers thought it was just a prank until a good Samaritan came along and took it seriously, called the police, and they let the guy out. Trapped there with all the money. Listen, generosity is the key to unlocking the door when we are trapped in consumerism. If you want to guard against the side effects of just consuming wealth, I would suggest you can't evaluate your giving in terms of dollars, 
percentages give you a much better reflection of whether you have control of your money or the money has control of you. So what percentage should you give? Well, this is where pastors are going to reach way back into the Old Testament, pull out a 10% tithe as the standard. By the way, that wasn't the standard. There were three tithes. One was every third year. That would have made it 23 and a third percent. Ever met anybody who goes by the Old Testament law with tithing? It's 23 and a third, by the way. I mean, if you want to really follow the Old Testament, I would suggest tithing at a 10%. That's just kind of a baseline place to start, but it's not the standard. God desires for us to be truly generous and not bound by a formula. In 2 Corinthians 8.3, it says of the churches in Macedonia who were giving to help the believers in Jerusalem, that they gave not according to their ability, but beyond their means. In other words, their giving was beyond what anybody would have expected of them. They were not well off. In fact, they were suffering themselves with great economic turmoil. There was a famine. Paul's trying to drum up some support to give to the Christians in the center of the famine, but there wasn't a rich, upwardly mobile, middle-class white church to go to. Compelled by concern and care and love and compassion and obedience, these Christians placed themselves in dependence upon God by believing that God would supply for their needs, and they gave. Now, it doesn't mean that we're irresponsible with our obligations. That's not what it's saying. But merely that we're generous with our giving. And generosity was not hindered by poverty. I'll never forget when I was a teenager going to uh, the hills of North Carolina. And we did these vacation Bible schools in a rural area in the mountains, in the middle of the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina, and it was quite an experience. I mean, you would go a time to sit down with people. You talk about poverty. I mean, I remember this one house we went to to have dinner. The guy had his spittoon and spitting in that thing all the time while we're having, having, uh, having a dinner, and then these rancid-looking pickles in this pickle jar. I swear it must have been 20 years old. You know, you had to go in. That's all they had. But man, they put everything they had in their refrigerator out on that table. They were generous. And we were taught, you eat whatever is put on the table. And you keep your mouth shut. You're grateful. You give thanks. They put this whole thing of chicken. Listen, I don't know what that cost that family, but I know it was a large percentage because they wanted to be gracious to us. Certainly not rich but they were very generous. Giving is to be with generosity from the heart. David and his leaders were giving generously to the temple project, and it says in 1 Chronicles 29.9, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And then in 2 Corinthians 8.89, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others 
the sincerity of your love also, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. All of this is just to remind us that we don't give because we're commanded, but it's a response of how good God has been to us. I I ponder his grace, his goodness to me, and it puts my heart in the right position then to give. Not out of obligation. But all disciples of Jesus Christ acknowledge God's ownership. They guard against materialism by giving regularly and generously. And they give from the heart as an act of worship. So a covenant participant in the body of Christ is a steward of their relationship with God by being responsible to foster a healthy relationship with them regardless of their circumstances. A covenant participant is a steward of their relationship with other believers by fostering unity. Covenant participant is a steward of the gifts God has given them, and they serve with joy, with love as an act of worship. And a covenant participant is a steward of the material possessions that God has given to them. And they they give that away regularly and generously to see the church advance the kingdom of God. Let's pray.